So we're going to be looking at John chapter 7, verses 25 through 39, claims of Jesus. How many people have been Christmas shopping already? All right, I'm done. They're not done. I'm all done. I got like one thing left, I think, to get. You know, and I, I, don't, I don't always like Christmas. I like shopping. I like giving gifts to people. Uh, but I don't like the actual experience sometimes of shopping because especially during Christmas time, it's a mob scene, isn't it? The mall is crazy. And then you have those people in those kiosks. You know the ones I'm talking about. And my wife, as we walk by, she's like, don't make eye contact, don't make eye contact. Because if you make eye contact, you know you're in there. Somehow, the other week when we were shopping, we ended up in a store. My wife was getting a hand wash by some weird mineral soap. I don't know how it happened, but you made eye contact, and then all of a sudden you're sucked into this store, and this, she's putting these weird chemicals all over your hands. And she tried it with me, and I'm like, you think I care about the way my hands look right now? And they give you promises, don't they? They make claims. All these different claims that all these products can do for you. You can make you look younger. Take 20 years off of your skin. You know, we can make you feel better about yourself. And we know that they are going to make certain claims and kind of exaggerate those claims, don't, don't we? Sometimes we wonder after we buy those things and then they don't perform and then you end up in those long lines afterwards. Well, we expect that. You know, but it's, it's a little different when people actually lie to you. You know, we know that some ads use puffery and exaggerating claims and using superlative subjective terms like delicious, best, or perfect. And consumers can expect that, but sometimes these claims can't be supported at all. Sometimes they're actually just lies. Just to get you to spend money or to put your faith or trust in their company or in their product. As a matter of fact, Loomis Labs claimed its app, which offers users access to games and brain training exercises, they said that it would help prevent Alzheimer's disease. You know what the proof was that they had for this? Zero. So they were actually sued $2 million from the Federal Trade Commission. So I think they're going to be, you know, looking at how they do their ads. And there was another ad uh, this was by Nissan, 2014, showed, uh, I don't know if you remember this ad, showed a Nissan Frontier pushing a dune buggy up a hill. There's supposed to be a slide there. Work with me. There we go. There it is. That didn't happen. That was false. Uh, so they also were sued. And they had to remove the ad from television. So these things you see on TV, you're like, oh, you know some guy is like, I'm going to buy a Nissan and push a dune buggy off the hill. And he probably killed himself. And then that's why they had to take that ad off of there because these people trust these ads. There's another one claimed by Frosted Mini Wheats. Frosted Mini Wheats claimed that by eating this cereal, your children's attentiveness would improve. <laughs> It's probably because of all the sugars that are in it, right? So this ad was also taken off, and they were also sued as well. People claim these things, products claim these things, and then we realize that they're not true, and then what happens? We get cynical. We don't trust. Politicians claim certain things to get your vote, don't they? Hey, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to do this for you. They get in the office... And they do the opposite for you. You don't trust. 
It's the same in the spiritual realm, isn't it? Imagine it's the same for, for people when they come to Christ. Can I trust Him? Can I trust what He says? And, and there are people that are listening to the claims of Jesus and they're kind of making these same decisions. And that's exactly what is happening in our passage today. Jesus is making some extraordinary claims. Jesus is saying, look, if you come to me, if you believe in me, if you put your faith in me, you are going to live forever. You can trust me with your life. I am God. I have been sent by God. I am God incarnate. I am going to suffer, die, and be raised again for your sins. However, Jesus is not out for your money. He's not out to manipulate you. What does he want? He wants to save you. As we look at this message today, I hope it does one of two things. Hope that if you have placed in Jesus Christ, that this just reinforces that faith. That you can realize that you have trusted in someone who is not lying to you. Who is not going to let you down. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I hope that that brings you to that point. And I also hope that after this, you are convicted even more to share this truth with others. There are three claims that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, so the first claim of Jesus is who he is from, verses 25 through 31. So follow along, John chapter 7, uh, 25 through 31. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? So they're picking up on this. Jesus is confronting the authorities and they're wondering, why aren't they doing anything? Do they know something? Look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. Whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he's from. Jesus then cries out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him. He sent me. So they were seeking to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes... He will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? So you see the discussion. It's kind of like a discussion that happens today. Do people know that Jesus is Christ? Is that what people are saying, that Jesus is the Messiah? And they're kind of debating this in their heads. And John's giving us kind of like an outtake of this life of what it looks like when Jesus was present and how people were coming to this conclusion. So we see that the debate centers around, is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised one? And from here, uh, the debate and the inquiries go forward, and it's one that continues today. We see similar responses. Some people look at the claims of Christ, they read the Bible, or they hear the claims of Christ through those who are his disciples, and they begin to make decisions. Oh, is Jesus the Christ? Well, here's the evidence that we have for Jesus being the Christ. But what are, and some people believe, but what are some of the other responses? They try to stop them, don't they? Just like what they did right here. 
The people hear something and later on the authorities are going to hear the people say something that there's murmurings. And the murmurings is that of the Messiah. And they're like, we don't want that. We can't have them saying that. And they begin to try to put an end to people saying that. So some basics about the Messiah. One of the major basics about the Messiah is that he's sent by God. He's sent by God. And he is to lead Israel to peace and to a deeper knowledge of God, and he will be characterized by signs and wonders. So that's the, the, one of the, the general explanations of who the Messiah was to be. This is the people, this is the one that Israel was looking for. And now they're beginning to say this with regards to Jesus. And the authorities are getting afraid because they are saying this. So they want to put a stop to this. And it's ultimately what Jesus claims about himself, about being the Messiah, and about being God, that brings Jesus to the cross through the authorities. And many, many people are wondering today, and the same reactions happen. One of the main things that we've got to see about the Gospel of John, he says at the end, and we see here. What is John's purpose in writing this Gospel? His purpose is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ. That's his whole goal. And that by believing, you will have life in his name. And people debate about that all the time. And they say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be Messiah. And if they they say that, they're not reading this book. Because you either have to take this book as historical claims or historical fact, and if you throw this book out, yeah, you can say anything you want about Jesus. And people say, well, we can't understand God, we can't know God, we don't know the path to God because he hasn't told us anything. Well, that's not true. He tells us right here. Matter of fact, it reminds me of the story, illustration of the blind man and the elephant. How many people have heard that? This illustration before. There's a story of the blind man, and, and no one can understand, if they're blindfolded, who the elephant is. So we're only given like a piece of information, and we're, we're coming to these conclusions blind. And it's supposed to illustrate how man cannot understand God. The guy, so one guy touches the, the elephant's ear, and he's, he doesn't know what it is, and he, he thinks he's touching a fan. Another one touches the tail. He thinks he's holding a rope. Another one touches the belly. He thinks it's a wall, and so on and so on and so on. And the point is that we're all blind when it comes to know God. Now, that's, that's partly true, that we don't really know who he is. We're all just kind of grasping in the dark and kind of making our way understanding salvation, understanding life. But there's two problems with this. The first problem is the narrator knows it's an elephant. Who told him? How how does he know it's an elephant? The the second problem is, is, is even bigger, and it doesn't consider this paradigm shattering question. What happens if the elephant talks? I'm an elephant. And he says, hey, you're grabbing my ear. That's my tail. That's my belly. Guess what? God tells us. Jesus tells us right here 
they're wondering, is he the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes, I've been sent by God. Are those guys considered humble if they ignore what he says? No, that's not humility. That's ignorance. That's rebellion. We see both aspects here in the passage that they know and they don't know. But more importantly, Jesus tells them. Jesus tells them that he is the one that they are looking for. He is the one who is sent by God, fulfilling the Messiah origin. But then he tells them it is not a where, but a who. Jesus says something really, really important here. He says, number one, he did not come to represent himself. Number two, he represents God, and God is what? True. We're in a culture right now that is not believing in absolute truth. And you and I have to defend that truth by defending this right here. Jesus reveals God himself. And no one can claim that Jesus did not claim to be God because he does so throughout the Gospel of John. And there are so many false claims that people are like, well, Jesus never said he was God. Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Jesus never said that. They're not reading that book, are they? And we can toss all of that out and then we don't have the elephant talking. We're telling us, hey, this is what it's like. Hey, this is who I am from, and this is what it means because I am sent from him. Jesus is not speaking of his own accord, but he is speaking of God, and he's revealing to them who God is. As a matter of fact, later on, we know that Thomas asks Jesus, and he says, he says show us the Father. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, meaning I and the Father are one. The word here for from, when he says, I'm sent from God, is para, which means to come alongside, which where we get our words paraclete from and parachurch from. Uh, it means the extension of or from alongside of. It is most often used in denoting a person or something, or actually someone in this case, that proceeds from this person. Folks, if Jesus Christ is not God Almighty in the flesh, this thing is all pointless. If Jesus Christ is not God incarnate, then Jesus Christ cannot die for our sins. If he's just another sinful human being, then you and I are in serious trouble. If Jesus Christ is not God incarnate, then he cannot reveal God the Father to us. This whole thing falls apart. This is not just another individual that is to lead us as an example or to an example or to lead us to the divine nature in ourselves. That's not who he is. If Jesus is not God, he's a lunatic. He's lying right now. If Jesus isn't God, then you and I can all go Christmas shopping for a Savior that never comes. And it's all pointless. The fact that he says something that they didn't like is seen in the fact that they try to do what? They try to seize him. And sometimes we have to look at the reactions of the people around Jesus 
uh, to the things that he says. So he is expressing that he has a very, very unique relationship with God. They don't like that, so they, at this point, try to lay hands on him. It's unclear whether or not it's the officials at this point, but we know the officials after this also try to seize him. But guess what happens? Why can't they lay hands on him? Because he's sent from God. (laughs) So this proves his point, exactly what he is saying. His hour has not come. And isn't it the same in our lives sometimes too? I have people that will talk to me and they'll, they'll watch my life and I'll tell them certain things that happen. And you know what their response is? And these are unbelievers and they'll say, wow, it really seems like someone's watching over you. Yes, yes, let me tell you. Let me tell you who's watching over me. His name is Jesus. And the reason why Jesus is watching over me is because what he says here is true because God was watching over him. And guess what? Jesus can be watching over you too if you believe what he says here. And they're not putting two and two together, but when we look at this, Jesus was one person. You're telling me they couldn't, they couldn't seize him? They couldn't take him out? No. Why? Because of who he is. Because his hour had not come. Because the Messiah was sent for a very specific purpose, at a very specific time, to be done in a very specific way, and to be done by very specific people. It was mapped out by God. God had his hand upon him. But not only that, how else is it proven of what he says because of the miracles that he does? And that's what the people come and say. Who else is going to do these things? If you toss out the Bible, if you toss out the miracles of Jesus, yes, you have a case that he's not the Messiah. But you can't toss out the miracles. Because even Nicodemus says, God must be with you for you to do all of those things. And if you don't believe the Bible, Josephus was not a Christian, but he was a Jewish scholar, Jewish historian, testifies that Jesus did wonders. So it's not just in the Bible, it's outside the Bible as well. And these people come to the right conclusion. Second claim is where he is at, verses 32 through 36. So the Pharisees are all upset now because they hear these words, Christ. And they don't want the crowds to be thinking this about Jesus. They heard the crowd muttering these things, and the chief priests and the Pharisees then sent officers to seize him. Jesus said, for a little while longer, I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement that he said, you will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? It's kind of interesting because as soon as people start talking about Jesus as being the Savior, as being the only one, people get nervous, don't they? Oh, well, there's got to be multiple saviors, and oh, there's got to be many paths to God. Or, and, and, and these are general concerns that people don't want one way. They don't want Jesus Christ to be the Messiah. 
Our job as Christians is to go out and to be proclaiming that truth and to do so in a gentle and reasonable fashion. In a way, say, hey, you're not really looking at all the claims or all the evidence that Jesus presents. But what do people eventually try to do? Is they try to stop that from happening. And that's, that's what you and I are seeing in our world today. Eventually, we're not going to be able to say Jesus is the Messiah. So the time is now that we can say those things. So we better take opportunity, right? Because there's going to come a time when when you say Jesus Christ is the Messiah, they might seize you too. And people don't want to hear that, but that is exactly what they need to hear. So these crowd, they, they start muttering these words, and now the, now the rulers are like, whoa, 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 we can't have that. We can't have these people saying this is the Christ. How can Jesus be the Christ? We know where he is from. We know who his parents are. And look at the way that they're looking at Jesus throughout this text. How are they looking at him? They're looking at him through an earthly lens. There are two sets of eyes that we could use to look at Jesus. It's the eyes of the world or the eyes of faith. The eyes of the world say, oh, we know where he's born. Oh, we know what town he came from. Oh, we know he's a carpenter's son. Oh, we know he's just a Galilean. Oh, we know, we know, we know. The eyes of faith say, okay, wait a second. There's something a little more here. That's what John says. We know where he's from, but we don't know who he's from until he tells us that he's from God. And here, when he tells them where he's going, what do they think? Earthly. Oh, is he going into hiding? Oh, is he going among the dispersion, which was the dispersion of the Jews, among the Gentiles, and is he going to teach the Greeks? They can't find Jesus because they're looking in the wrong place. And it's the same thing today. People can't find Jesus because they're looking in the wrong place, because they're looking with the wrong set of eyes. Here, what Jesus is saying is prophetic, and it has a greater impact today than it did back then, because Jesus is there with them, and all they're thinking is, oh, he's going into hiding. Where is he going? He's got to be going somewhere on earth that we can't see him. But now, we, it's not where he is going, it's where he's at. So where is Jesus today? Where's Jesus? He's in heaven, right? And that's exactly what he says where he's going right here. This is his ascension. Jesus prophesies his own ascension into heaven. And he says, you're going to look for me and you're not going to be able to find me. Why? Because I'm going back to the one who sent me, meaning I completed my mission here on earth. It is done. I fulfilled it. I'm the Messiah. Therefore, I'm going back to God. That's what he says. And we know that the ascension is one of our creeds of the faith. He was born, he lived, he suffered, he died, he was buried, he rose again, and he ascended into heaven. And that is what encourages us every day as you and I live here on earth. The fact that, guess what? Jesus is alive. They can't find him because he's not here. And the people who are looking for his bones today, they can't find his bones because he still has them. A resurrected form, but they still have them. That's why they can't find them. They're looking in the wrong place. Guy tells a story about a woman 
following an Easter service in 2003, approached a pastor. I love, I wish I would sometimes have a, have a question like this. And she came up to him and, and she said, what happened with Jesus after the resurrection? Okay, a fair question. And I don't know if she wasn't putting two and two together or he wasn't explaining well enough what happened to Jesus after resurrection. But he, he replied and he said, well, he ascended into heaven and he's still alive. Straightforward answer. She looks at him and she says, I know he was resurrected, but you're telling me he's still alive today? Uh, yeah, still alive. Alive? Alive? Why didn't you tell me? For the next, he probably felt like a punk of a pastor after he's probably like, I probably said it like 40 times by now. You know what she did for the next two weeks? She called everyone she knew. Do you know what she said? Jesus is alive. Did you know that he's still alive? Jesus is alive. You know where Jesus is at right now? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for those who have put their faith in him. Jesus is alive and in heaven. And the way that he went to heaven, guess what? Is the same way that he's coming back to earth. The ascension gives us the hope and the confidence of that return. I love how this woman responds to this. It's not just information, is it? It's transformation. This, this fact, the very fact that Jesus right now is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you and me, has given all authority to you and me, has given us the power of the Holy Spirit, should make us run out those doors and tell this entire world that truth. He's alive. He's in heaven. He fulfilled what he said right here. They can't find him because he's not here. And he's coming back. That's the message of hope that we have. He tells us ahead of time. He mentions it to his disciples later on. He says to them, you know the way to where I am going. And then I think it's Thomas again says, we don't know the way. I don't even know where you're going. How do I know the way? What does, his, what does he say? There is a way. Through him. Through him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the way that Jesus took is the way of the cross. That's how you get to him. That's how you find him. You look at him through the eyes of faith. You accept what Messiah did here on earth. Completed his mission. 
came as a child that we are going to celebrate in a few weeks, suffered, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and me right now. If you don't believe me that he's there, someone saw him shortly after this. His name was Stephen. Didn't Stephen see him? When did Stephen see him? When he was going out and proclaiming this truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And what did people want to do to Stephen? They wanted to kill him. These folks who don't see Christ through the eyes of faith are going to try to stop everyone who says that he is the Messiah. And they're stoning Stephen and Stephen looks up Who does he see? Jesus, right where he said he was going to be. With the Father. Except, guess what? He wasn't sitting. He was standing. He was standing in support of what Stephen was saying. And he was standing to receive Stephen's spirit. That truth, that reality gets us through every second of every day and allows us to go forth and proclaim this truth to people who need to hear it. And he's not just the Messiah for Israel. He's the Messiah for the entire world. And there is so much irony in what is said next. They think he's going to the Greeks. They think he's going into the diaspora. And it is in the context of his hour being mentioned. If you flip over to John chapter 12, verse 20, just read what it says here. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, What? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Do we see the connection here? By the time this gospel was written, guess what? The Greeks knew. Jesus had gone to the Greeks, just not the way that they thought he was going to go. And Jesus then fulfills also what is said of the servant in Isaiah. And it's the same context of the verse that we're going to look at here in a few seconds. Not only is he the Messiah to Israel, but what does he say? I will make also, also make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. How does Jesus bear fruit? How does, he, how does he bear fruit in that? He dies. That's what he says. You and I are the fulfillment of what he says here. We're the Gentiles. The fulfillment of him ascending. And the gospel going forth 
into the nations. You see how it's all connected? And here John mentions what these folks say, but in reality, really, what God's plan was all along. It is thick with irony and also with prophecy. And Jesus' ascension into heaven allows us to experience what he claims next, what he can give. So we have the who he is from, where he is at, what he can give, verses 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Stands up, and he cries out. He wants every single person within earshot to hear it. Are you thirsty? Are you dissatisfied? Come to me. Not come to a religion, not come to an organization, not come to the law, not come to anything else, not come to anyone else. Come to me. 1977, NASA launched Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 to explore the galaxy. You know, you've heard of the golden record. It's out there now. Uh, it's called the Sounds of Earth. It was affixed uh, to each of the twin spacecraft. It was a message from Earth to anyone out there in the universe who might be listening. It contained both music and the sound of a human heartbeat. Thirty years later, Annie Druin, who served as the creator, creative director of the VIM, which is Voyager Interstellar Message Project, reflected on what she chose to include. You know what? You send a record to Earth. <laughs> you don't want me singing on that record. You will turn right around. What do you put on it? She said, the first thing I found myself thinking of was a piece by Beethoven. Opus 130 something called the Cavatina Movement. She said, when I first heard this piece of music, I thought, Beethoven, how can I ever repay you? What can I ever do for you that would be commensurate with what you have just given me? And so, as soon as my colleague said, this message is going to last a thousand million years, I thought of this piece of music. This piece of great, beautiful, and sad music. Music on which Beethoven had written in the margin 
a word. Sehundschut. I don't know if that's how you say it in German, but it means longing. She chose this piece of music. So what he had written, what this music represents. Part of what we wanted to capture in the message was this great longing we feel. So in the end, NASA chose a human song of longing and launched it into space. It's as if the NASA scientists were saying to the rest of the universe, this is who we are as human beings, who we are as human beings, creatures of longing. What a testimony to the condition of man apart from Jesus Christ. Longing, dissatisfied, wondering, is there anyone else out there who feels the same? Wondering, maybe there's someone out there who can satisfy this search. This longing humans have leads to what? Seeking satisfaction apart from God. We seek satisfaction in our jobs. We seek satisfaction in relationships. We seek satisfaction in our ambition. We seek satisfaction in our lusts. We seek it in our entertainment. We seek it in our ideologies. We seek it in our religious traditions. We seek it in politics. But yet, we remain empty. We seek it so much, we, we send a message to other galaxies looking for an answer, but yet, silence. Jesus isn't silent on this subject. And he cries something out that he wants not just those in his vicinity to hear, he wants the entire world to hear, hey, are you dissatisfied? Are you longing? Come to me. Come to me and I will give you a spiritual satisfaction that doesn't last an hour, that doesn't last a day, but lasts an entire life, lasts into eternity. That's what he's promising. The only way that Jesus can promise that is if he is who he says he is. Because if he's just another guy off the street, can all go home. We can all remain dissatisfied. Never, ever, ever to be filled the way that Jesus promises here. It's the last day of the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated for about seven days on the eighth day. Huge festival. There were two symbols that were used throughout the feast. It was water and light. Or water and light, if you didn't catch that last one in translation. Jesus hits on the one symbol right here, and in a few passages, in a few verses, he's going to hit on the light symbol. The context in which he makes this statement points to the fact that he is claiming to be God's agent of restoration. The last day culminated on this special celebration 
the two symbols by this point have really sunk into the minds of the people. The tabernacle, the Feast of Tabernacles was also associated with hope, restoration. And all this excitement is going on. And what does Jesus say? I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the one who can give you this. As they long for that deliverance, Jesus promises just that, an endless supply of life given when the Holy Spirit is given, when he is glorified and does what? Ascends. Just like he said he was going to do. It's the only way he can do it. The only way he can give the promise of the Holy Spirit is if, what hap- if it happens what he says, just what he just said about and I'm going to go to heaven, and when I go to heaven, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit because I've been glorified. I've completed the mission that God has sent me to do. But in Isaiah, he elaborates on this, and listen to what it says in Isaiah. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money On that which is not bread, why labor for that which doesn't satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear, come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. That's what he's saying. That's a verse that can be plastered on this world right now, can it? How many people are working for bread that doesn't, that's not bread? How many people are laboring for that which doesn't satisfy? Jesus says it's here. It's in Him. And when we come to Him, then those things can be enjoyed the way that they were supposed to be. Ultimate satisfaction is only found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. That's it. There's nothing else. No one offers such a hope. No one. Nothing. No one can claim this except for God Almighty. It's free. That's what he says. What does it cost you? Nothing. Why? Because it cost him his life. And he hits us where? In the innermost being. He hits us in a place where only God can reach. And it's not just one river, it's plural. It continues, it overflows, and it overflows to refresh those who don't know him. You know, Albert Pujols, the first baseman, popular guy, has a lot, I would imagine, lots of money, lots of things. World Series champ. Eight-time All-Star recipient of three National League MVP awards. 
According to 2008 poll of 30 major league baseball managers, he was the most feared hitter, hitter in the sport. But even more impressive is his life off the field. He has a, a donation, or a foundation, I'm sorry, uh, that he started. It offers support and care to people with Down syndrome and their families. He also has a the part of that foundation, helps the poor people in the Dominican Republic. He has a family, wife of 10 years, and provides a loving household to four little children. Why does he do all that? Makes a person do all that. He has a lot, doesn't need anything, and he gives. He's a Christian. He's a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And he was speaking at a senior high school. He's talking to a bunch of young, young boys and their fathers. And he's telling them about ambition and telling them, telling them about following or getting sucked into this world. And he says, you know, it would be really easy for me to go out and do whatever I want. Have the money, have the time, he's famous, he's rich, do whatever he wants. But he says this, he says, those things are only going to satisfy my flesh for a moment. Jesus satisfies my soul forever. What's one of the biggest proofs that what Jesus says here is true? Look around the room. Look around the room. Look at the way people give. Look at the way people love. Look at the way they serve. Why are you and I here? Why do we go out and do what we do? It's because we've been satisfied by Christ. And ultimately, that's one of the greatest ways to know what Jesus is saying, that what Jesus is saying is true. Because of the lives that have been changed by those who believe Him. That guy has everything. He has everything, though, because he has Christ. Believing in Jesus as the Christ results in an eternally satisfied spiritual life. Walk this backwards. The reason why Jesus can give the Holy Spirit is because he's glorified and ascended into heaven. The reason why he's glorified and ascended into heaven is because he completed his mission on earth. The reason why he completed his mission on earth is because he was sent by God. That's it. This is claims. The end result of that is eternal life that wells up in us and pours out to others and brings us back to him. They started out by saying, do the rulers really know? Do the rulers really know that this is the Christ? Christ? That's not the question. The question is, do you? Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for sending us Christ. Lord, help us 
to always remember and seek for the satisfaction that comes from you. Lord, help us to be fortified in our faith. Help us to be strengthened by your Holy Spirit, whom you have given us freely. Help us to live for you in a way that glorifies and speaks to this truth. Lord, and help us to go forth and proclaim it to all those who need to hear it through your power and with your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.